Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Ruler podcast. My name's Jack Thurston, and this is the podcast for issue 53 of Ruler magazine. Joining me down the line from the Ruler offices are Andy McGrath, who's the managing editor of the magazine, and Tim John, who's Ruler's website editor. Welcome both to the podcast. So uh, let's let's kick things off in the usual fashion by each picking our our favourite photograph or, or spread from this issue. And I know, I'm, I'm pleased to say that this little podcast feature that we've been doing for a little while now has migrated its way into the magazine itself. Um, so obviously we're doing something right on the podcast, and uh, because we've got Nicky Terpstra picking his favourite picture of the issue um, on page nineteen. So um, Andy, what, what's your what's your uh, favourite shot? It's a tough one. Um, I'm going to go for something from the Northeast feature, which is kind of cheating because I was there uh, when it was taken anyway. Um, on page 31, there's a lovely shot where there's the crown of the road with the cobbles is the only bit above water and there's a puddle on either side and reflected are the clouds. And, and I remember when we came there in the car, it was a deserted stretch of cobbles. I just knew it was perfect and it was just pure chance we got it at that light late in the afternoon and it looks lovely and that kind of sums up how it Yeah, all the elements. Yeah, no, that is, that is a lovely, um, very peaceful, peaceful exactly, photograph yeah. and also quite kind of an unusual way to see it because if they were riding that uh, stretch, you wouldn't have that glassy smoothness in the, in the water. So it's clearly the cobbles at rest. Exactly. It's not distressed at all. And there was no one around. In fact, there's no one ever on any of these pave sections, um, I think, outside of, you know, that second weekend in April. That's what really hit home, that they're just tiny farm roads that are really hard to find. Yeah, well, we'll come to your, your feature in a bit. Um, yeah. uh, but Tim, what's, what's your pick uh, of, of the photos from, um, from this issue? OK, my pick, Jack, is a picture from the Desert Races feature and it's a picture of a movie star rider viewed from the windscreen of a team car, and he is descending. Uh, it's interesting to me because I was in Qatar and Amman, but not Dubai, where the images are from. And it really shows or underscores a comment that I've made in the feature, which is we refer to these three Middle Eastern races as the desert races, but actually they're wildly different. And the landscape that I can see in that image is completely uh, unlike anything that I saw in Qatar and Amman. 
and over and above that, it's a very striking image. The rider is alone. He's clearly traveling at speed. His knee is out, pointing at, a, at an apex that's some distance away. Uh, it really gives an impression of the speed and the skill with which the rider is approaching the corner. And you've got the helicopter um, in some, some distance away down the, down the valley. Yes, <laughs> almost the same color as the mountains, the black mountains. So is it, does that suggest we're watching um, a, a tail ender here? Quite possibly, yeah. Um, I'm not even sure if the, if the helicopter is connected to the race. Uh, it's black, looks a little bit sinister. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, a, it's one of many beautiful images from, from Joel Hewitt in this magazine. Well, Tim, that's interesting because um, my pick is uh, from the same photo story. Um, sorry to not be more original, but it's um, a few pages on and it's the shot, double page spread on, oh, I don't know, there's none of these pages are numbered, so I can't tell you which one it is, but um, around about 100 and um, it's got the riders all lined out on, a, on quite a sort of flat road. Uh, and this does look to me like a desert. I mean, you had the idea of a desert being Sahara desert cartoon image with all the beautiful soft sand dunes everywhere. But actually, I think the desert is a lot more like this, quite rough terrain. And then in the background, these massive mountains. The shot is clearly from a car because there's there's a, a following car because you can see a bit of the dashboard or something around. And then there's these these pylon wires hanging um, up in the corner and it it just does conjure up kind of the harshness of what i imagine it's like to ride a bike in the in the in the middle east and also how strange it is because when you think about it cycling in most places where there's bike racing it, it, it sort of evolved from a cycling culture that was embedded in everyday life and i know that there are people who do cycle um in the middle east but there're not many of them um, and and so it's extraordinary that this race gets um, put on in, in this environment that is not really a natural home to cycling. Um, but that, you know, that makes it interesting in, in, in different ways. And I think we'll come to that when we, when we talk about the desert races um, and, and the words that you wrote to accompany this photo story. But um, yeah, good choices both. Shall we begin with the uh, Paris-Roubaix for the opening, opening piece, Andy? We all know about Flandrian riders, but but you're introducing us to a new category of rider, the Nordeast. Tell us about the Nordeast. Well, firstly, the Nordeast have won Paris-Roubaix and Flanders a hell of a lot less than the Flandrians. What happened is that I went to Paris-Roubaix with Pauline Ballet, our photographer, and I've been wanting to do this feature for a while. It was to kind of get inside the fabric of the race and to explain that okay, it's a weekend after Flanders and loads of Flandrians have, have won it impressively, but it's an entirely French race. And more than that, it's a race in the French region of the Nord entirely, all those cobbled sectors. So what I did was uh, I visited a few of the men, of the local men who, have, who came extremely close to winning the race, both in the 80s as it happens. It was Alain Bondu, who was third on his 25th birthday in 1984. And then Bruno Wojtinek, who was second the following year when Mark Madio won. Uh, and it was talking to them, not just about their careers, but also about this Nordist culture and the region and, and tying in some of the industrial 
history and connotations because Parube is very closely linked to the mining and and steelworks history of that of that region. Uh, we popped into the Arenberg mine, which uh, they do tours there twice a week, run by old miners, and it's it's fascinating. Some of the bits have barely changed in twenty uh, five odd years since it closed, and we kind of pulled all those strands together to really get a picture of of what Parube is and really look at it deeply. I mean, we're familiar with the Flandrian stereotype and the history that comes behind that kind of agricultural work and toil on the land and then toil on the bike um, and an ability to, to, to be strong in all, all conditions. What, what, is there a, an equivalent set of characteristics of a Nordeast rider or is it more of a, just a, a kind of geographic loyalty um, that people have who come from that, that part of the world? It's a similar kind of thing. I can't deny that the two regions are very close geographically. They even share that same flag, the yellow flag with a black line on. I'd say it's the same toughness. But if anything, in the north, there's even more of this kind of, firstly, um, a mining history because it's got the richest mining scene in France. But also a load of Polish immigrants came here and mainly settled in the north for the coal works, for the steel works, for the mines. And there's loads of cyclists famous cyclists who come from that background and not just uh, Bondu and Wojcinek but guys like Stablinski the former world champion and uh, Roger Valkowiak who uh, who won the tour in the 50s so yeah they are tough and if anything I think cycling was an escape from the mines cycling was easier than you know pulling 14 hour shifts 500 meters um, underground that's a point I'm making the feature that there's a lot of mythology attached to, Ru- to Roubaix and kind of connotations with war and death. And that's, that's justified. But Paris-Roubaix is not life and death, whereas kind of mining and still hopes can be. There were a fair few miners that didn't come back from their shifts. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a very well-made point, I thought, reading, reading the piece. It's, it's easy for people to talk about sport um, and even a very physical sport like cycling in terms that are really just going a little bit beyond what reasonable metaphor should allow us, a respectful metaphor even. Um, yeah. you, do, you do introduce us to Bruno Wojtinek, Wojtinek? I don't know. Wojti, yeah, yeah, Wojtinek, I think. Wojtinek. They call him Wojti in the peloton. Okay, yeah. Bruno Wojtinek. Um, and this is a rider that I'd, I'd not heard of, I have to confess, and it sounds like he, he could have been absolutely one of the greats. I mean, and, and almost a, a tragic story, but ultimately... He's all right now. He's, he's more than all right. Of all the current and former pro cyclist homes I've been to and interviewed at, he's got the nicest one. It's like something <laughs> out of an, an interior design book. In fact, he is an interior designer, so there you go. But he's, he's landed on, a, um, on his feet and then some. I won't give away the whole story, but he was the French prodigy for several years in the 80s. But I'm glad you hadn't heard of him, actually. And I hadn't either months ago when I was researching. And that's what made me think... I can't believe we haven't heard this story before and I want to tell it. So, yeah. And and it's great the way he doesn't seem to live in that part of his life in any way at all. That's right. Um, His friend came around, kind of popped around during the interview and he hadn't heard of Miguel Indurain or or Sean Kelly. And kind of Bruno was, he said he hadn't gotten out uh, this big scrapbook that his parents made for him of of old cuttings. He told me he hadn't got it out for five, six years. So I think that's that's pretty healthy. But he doesn't 
needs cycling, he doesn't live cycling, but he still loves it and he loved it then. Mm-hmm. Well, um, from, from the mud to the sand, desert racing, we mentioned these earlier in the photo pics. Um, these three races that you describe, um, Tim, um, they are new additions to uh, cycling's calendar and not not wholly embraced, I think, by by cycling fans. But you you you're pretty positive about the desert races. Yes, I, first time that I attended any of them this year, I went to the Tour of Qatar and to the Tour of Oman. And I think the first thing to say about the desert races is that that catch-all term doesn't really do justice to the diversity of them. Certainly the two that I saw, Qatar and Amman, are both very different countries. Uh, And the racing is extremely different too. Qatar is flat, of course, uh, and it's hard and it's fast from the get-go. I don't think anybody goes to Qatar expecting a warm weather training session. It's ferocious. On the second stage, I was in the commissaire's car and we were driving through a sandstorm, struggling to stay ahead of the peloton, which was doing nearly 60 kilometres an hour because it had a tailwind. We went into the desert where all you see are enormous convoys of tipper trucks. Uh, The police were riding ahead of us, flagging them down because, of course, they don't even bother with the road. They drive on the desert either side of the tarmac, which kicks up huge clouds of dust that were choking the riders. Not that any of them had time to consider that, of course, riding at 60 kilometres an hour. Crashes are inevitable at that speed. And, of course, the key feature uh, is the crosswinds, the echelons that they create, and that is a skill in itself. My own view is that if the Tour of Qatar was held in Europe, uh, it would be, you know, looked forward to with some anticipation each year it's simply because it's in a desert it it, it isn't uh the landscape certainly doesn't make for good television although the riding certainly does and it's a race that i think calls out for cameras on bikes but aman is extremely different and the racing is very much as it is in europe on the flat stages a breakaway goes and it comes to a bunch sprint normally but it has some wonderful scenery and the Green Mountain stage is formidable. So that's another race that you know should be judged really on its own merit rather than I think what many people consider to be a glorified warm weather training exercise. And uh, Dubai? Dubai I didn't attend. We sent our photographer Joel Hewitt. Uh, what impresses me about Dubai is the speed with which they've changed the parkour. It's only two years old. In the first year, it opened with a time trial and victory on that stage was enough for Taylor Finney to secure overall victory. This year, they've included a, quotes, mountain stage or a summit finish at the very least, uh, which I think was expected to deliver victory for Alejandro Valverde. And although he was second, it was John Degenkolb who won with a a tremendous effort that sort of left him lying on the tarmac in the fetal position. And again, another further evidence, I should say, to disprove the, the theory that it's easy pickings at that stage of the season. So if they had these tough races, as you described, with sandstorms and crosswinds and dangerous situations and crashes, you, what, what attracts the riders? Is it the same <laughs> thing that attracts everybody to the Middle East, the money? 
I think that's that's an element, certainly, and it would be naive to ignore that. Uh, Qatar particularly is, uh, I I think, what's overlooked in the mainstream media about the 2022 World Cup is that FIFA is only one in an extremely long line of sporting federations to say yes to Doha. And how about the sponsors? Because there was some um, comment I saw that I think it was the tour of Oman, was it, that was that was not even on television, in at least in Europe and the United States. Um, so all these sponsors who are having their logos on on, on the backs of the riders um, are not are not getting any not getting advertising time. Uh, there was there certainly wasn't, to my knowledge, live television coverage. There were highlights that okay. just shown but I'm not sure by whom or when. The, the reason I can say that there was at all with, with any certainty is that I had dinner most evenings with one of the television commentators and I saw the television helicopters, which again caused an enormous sandstorm at one of the, at one of the start locations and had to be sort of pulled away, so to speak. It is at moments like that that you fully appreciate just how alien cycling is to those Middle Eastern cultures. Doha is a very modern city, certainly within that those confines. It doesn't look entirely out of place, but at some of the start locations in Amman, where we're talking about very small villages, and suddenly you have effectively a traffic jam of race cars, bikes, riders, helicopters, commissaires, uh, <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a sight to behold. And so, Andy, do you, do, what, what's your take on this? I mean, we could look at the tour of Beijing, which seems to be a universally loathed bike race that's uh, is now gone, and many would say, "Thank goodness for that." Are these welcome additions to to cycling's calendar, or or are they just a, another tour of Beijing that's just maybe it's lasting a bit longer because it's got bigger bucks behind it? Well, I suppose just for starters, what these countries have going for them is that they're not massively polluted and they're coming at the, near the start of the season and not at the end. And I think everyone was tired by the time China came around. It was an afterthought. They're trying to do something in Arabia, trying to develop the cycling. And it's easy to say that there are no fans really at the finishes in Qatar and a bit in Dubai and Oman, slightly more. It's easy to say that. But they are. this is part of how they create the culture. I was speaking to someone from the continental team Skydive Dubai uh, a few weeks ago, and they would like to be well taught by 2020. So whether they're welcome or not, to me, doesn't really matter. I mean, what I can only see is that there's going to be more, more races in Arabia, and there's, and it could be a well taught team within five years, and maybe, who knows, more world champs or even a classic out there in the next 10, 15 years. There is talk of a race in Abu Dhabi at the end of the season. I think some of the things that need to be considered, Qatar, for example, is a country of full employment. Most of the races, most of the racing, I should say, also takes place in the desert. There was a sense of the mad dogs and Englishmen uh, going on there where Arabian people perhaps wouldn't countenance standing at the side of a desert road at two o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. For any number of reasons, um, and that of course detracts from the television spectacle. You know, compare and contrast with Yorkshire last year at the Grand Depart, where 
so much of the energy of the television coverage came from the, the number of people at the side of the road. That shouldn't be confused with the intensity of the racing, certainly in the case of Qatar. Oman seemed an altogether more relaxed affair. Um, but in Qatar, the, the racing is ferocious. And it, it, it's my belief that if that race in particular was held in Europe, it, it would probably be better loved than it is. Well, one thing that you probably won't need in um, the races <laughs> of uh, Dubai, Qatar and Oman is a, is a Gabba <laughs> cycling jersey I mean, or, does it, or is that is that just another stereotype am i completely wrong there does it do you sometimes get crazy desert rainstorms uh no 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 okay <laughs> no, all right yeah. i'm on safe yeah. territory they, they leave the gabba at home absolutely I mean, I mean this does this story i think is great and i mean we've we've all been we've all been to lots of uh equipment manufacturers through the pages of ruler over the years and you know, there's a certain feeling that once you've seen one set of carbon fibre layup or artisan frame builder, you've sort of seen them all. Um, that, I probably shouldn't say that, but I, well, maybe I, I'm, I've said it. I've said it now, so there we go. But but I think this this approach to a kind of tech story, looking at a particular phenomenon and the company behind it, I think is really a really good way in um, because the Gabba uh, waterproof. Or it's not maybe the Gabba waterproof. But anyway, that's all part of the story and part of the interest. The, the Gabba cycling jersey uh, jacket was a phenomenon, is a phenomenon. That's right, yeah. The reason that it doesn't resemble so many other tech features is that I'm, I'm a terrible tech writer. Because I, uh, I can't cope with, the, uh, with any technical kind of jargon. I just don't remember it for some reason. And, and it doesn't stick in my head. So that's why I, I've told the story here behind the Castelli Gabba. But as you say, it's not a waterproof. It's kind of water repellent up to a point. And that is kind of the whole crux of the Gabba. That's where they realised they could reinvent rainwear for racing cyclists, but it's filtered down to amateurs. Because at a time when everything else was changing, you know, aero this, aero that, rainwear stayed pretty much the same. You had these flappy, sweaty, cagoule-type uh, rain jackets inspired by mountaineering and commuting. So after a chat with the fellow test team, and in particular Gabriel Rash, Castelli sought to make this groundbreaking product in, in 2010. And it's fascinating. And I didn't realise how far their fortunes had fallen before, say, 2009. And the, and the fact is the Gabba was key in kind of restoring Castelli's futuristic, impressive reputation. If we, if we take a step back, um, rainwear is, is one of the real missed opportunities for sponsors in cycling. And they must get really furious every time the heavens open because suddenly everyone pulls out their rain jacket and, and covers up all the logos that they're being paid to um, exhibit um, while riding their bikes. And, and, it, and it looks like a sort of, I don't know, like a club reliability ride all of a sudden doesn't you know it it does yeah (laughs) everyone just going along it's a motley crew of um of people and it's all very uncoordinated and and you get the impression that riders just take what they find works for them and it's not the teams don't really think too much about it um but then suddenly this gabba comes along and 
people go, oh, I want to get one of those. And 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 in the, in, the, in the story, you 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 tell about um, how riders were were buying them. Fabian Cancellara was buying them, for, buying a couple from from a shop, you know. And 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 he could have just called up the company and said, will you send me over a, a box? Uh, Thomas Verclair was was buying a whole load for his team, and it just it was just a product that suddenly everyone wanted. I mean, that is the ultimate endorsement when pro riders not only wear them but chill out from their own pocket to buy them. So, and that's how it kind of spread. I mean, Caselli didn't expect this to catch on with with the rest of the cycling world, were with amateurs, uh, with amateur riders. But this is what happens when people, generally consumers, want what the pros have or wear. And when you had like Milan San Remo, uh, 2013, I think when it was running those atrocious conditions with with snow. And he had a whole bunch in Gabbards. That was a turning point. It was unavoidable. And it completely messed up everything for the other clothes wear sponsors for these other teams that wanted, that are supposed to be wearing rainwear from those companies. They were all in Gabbards. So I can't think of another tech product which has been quite so unanimously supported by the bunch. I mean, it shouldn't be as well, especially. That Milan San Remo edition when it was very cold and snowy that does give us the clue to why the gabba i think is a successful item of clothing because it's not really a waterproof if you have a waterproof garment that's fully waterproof it's going to get very soon very hot and sticky and inside or if it's cold it's going to get very cold and clammy and nasty inside whereas what this Gabba seems to do, from what I understand, I've never worn one myself, is that it keeps the riders warm when it when the rain would otherwise make them cold. And it's it it, it lets out moisture. Um it, it also lets in a certain amount of moisture. But it's it's providing a different kind of experience than a shell, which would you what you'd have in mountaineering, or maybe if if you're a commuter and you're not riding particularly fast, you want to stay dry. That's the the main concern. Whereas what professional racers seem to want out of a waterproof is to stay warm. Is that have I got that right? That's right. Yeah. And essentially it keeps the core warm. And when they're racing really hard, and to the point that some of them don't take it off until the finale. And it's still very popular in the bunch. In fact, I've heard that a lot of clothing manufacturers have have told their riders in no uncertain terms they, they cannot wear the Gabba this year. They're forbidden. Because they're being paid by another company to wear something else. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Which is kind of rule number one, isn't it? Yeah, well, that brings us very neatly to product testing, doesn't it? And and um, Tim, you uh, met up with Cadell Evans um, recently and and uh, talked to him about his, his, his new life post-racing. Yes, I travelled to Grand Canyon in Switzerland to BMC's headquarters uh, where... Evans is beginning a new chapter in his career. Well, let's hear from the man himself because you spoke to him. I stopped racing on the 1st of February. <laughs> I was my last race as a professional rider, but I continue riding, so I consider myself I'm still a bike rider. Um, fortunately for me and my association with BMC and the company, I continue working with the company, not, not, not so much with the team, but with the company in, um, in, in the aspects as, as a rider and as I was as a professional rider difference being I'm rather than racing I'm riding I'm being involved in the company on 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 the on the, on the other aspects
aspects uh, with out of the racing, which is great because I have much more time to do equipment testing. I'm not so, I don't have to be so careful with my position. I can test other bikes. I think I'm back on my mountain bike on Friday, um, which for me has been going to be a long time. But um, all of a sudden, I have have so many, so much more time to to do to do this other other work. But uh, most of all, I'm um, in this first year where I'm learning a lot about the company and so on and other aspects of the sports that you don't touch on as a professional rider. And um, next week, I'll be happy to be uh, out on the bike testing some uh, other levels of uh, bike that I haven't been, haven't yet ridden. BMC, as you say, is almost unique in the way it is you are able to work with them as a bike tester in that they have a facility here in Grenken in which they can make carbon prototypes to a very high standard. That must be a very interesting challenge for you as a rider. BMC is the, the way that the company and the manufacturer is structured in that they can receive rider input and put that very quickly into the what, what, what will become the production bikes to the to the consumer. And so in that regard, um, I think everyone tests all their equipment, but here I get to test it, give answers and give feedback that's, that's utilised and utilised very quickly and comes through in the end product. As a professional road rider, you don't actually... Um, ride many different bikes because you, you want to keep things as, as actually as, ultimately you want to keep things always the same your position and so on and and subtle improvements with uh, with the, the performance of the frame as the, as the as technology and so on evolves but um through this now i have an opportunity to try more things and then yeah funnily enough i rode seven years top level mountain biking as well mountain biking's changed a lot since i've um i was racing so now i've got to go back and learn the what, the suspension and tires has changed a lot and then of course the advent of all the different wheel sizes now changes a lot so i'm going to go back and go back to uh, square one and that and learning from the start from start at, start at the start from that and uh, there's been a lot of changes and um, and um, as, as, as a company of course we sort of stay ahead of all these changes and that's where my, part of my role not only testing the equipment here and giving feedback with designers and engineers but also keeping an eye on what everyone else is doing in competition out of competition and of course on the market as well that was Cadell Evans Tim, he does sound really enthusiastic about this, doesn't he? It makes me think of an article a few issues ago where Alex Dowsett talked about not having any choice in what he uses as a professional bike racer and that the fact that you know the top amateur racers can choose exactly what they want to they want to ride on, but the pros get a couple of choices chain rings and uh and a couple of handlebar options but basically they, they, they ride what they're given they ride what the the manufacturer wants to showcase to the world and i suppose cadell might must have experienced that himself and and now and now he's riding all kinds of stuff yeah i think um there's a parallel with evans and dalsett unlikely that may sound in that both of them are extremely interested in the machinery. Not every rider is. For many of them, it's a tool. And they, as you say, get on with what they're given. But with uh, certain types of riders, and typically they're time trialists, and that's probably the connection between Dowsett and Evans, they are highly concerned in looking for any advantage that they can find from their equipment. Over and above that, of course, Evans began his career as a mountain biker, where the performance of the bike, I would imagine, plays uh, a greater role than than on the road. So um, put those factors together, and, and perhaps it's less surprising that Evans is is so enthusiastic about 
getting getting his hands dirty with the business of testing. All right. Well, a couple of um, loose ends to tie up in the podcast. Uh, congratulations to Peter Jinman, um, who wins the Combativity Notebook and Ruler Classic Pen for correctly answering the following question. Um, how many times did Roger Hammond ride the Tour of Flanders? And the answer is, of course, 14 times. And the prize for the competition in this podcast, podcast for issue 53, is um, a Mavic Cosmic long sleeve jacket, courtesy of Condor Cycles, as worn by Christian House and the whole JLT Condor team. So that probably is one of the, the Gabba knockoffs, isn't it? No, 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 I'm sure it's a very good jacket in its own right. Uh, and it's brand new. Like, we haven't had the whole team wear it and then... Welcome to us. It's completely brand new. So there you go. <laughs> so it's not that. It's the model that's worn by them, not the actual one. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It hasn't got Christian house snot all down the sleeves. Well, maybe it would be kind of appreciated in value. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, I don't know. It depends I on the fan. No, Christian house. Come on. I don't think he's got too many <laughs> snot worshippers. Nice though he is. Anyway, the question is this: Which former Arenberg mine worker? introduced the Arenberg forest sector to the organisers of Paris-Roubaix. Which former Arenberg mine worker introduced the Arenberg forest sector to the organisers of the Paris-Roubaix? Um, he's got a lot of uh, answering to do for that, uh, principally to um, Johan Museu, who is um, featured in, uh, in a profile in the magazine. Um, but but um, yeah, send your answer to that question to competition at ruler.cc. And um, that's about it. And there's a lot more in the magazine. Um, Jan Kersipu interview by you, Andy. You, you've, had, you've had a real uh, flush of articles in, uh, in, in this issue. Um, and that's, that's terrific because that's, that's another... I don't know. I mean, it's ridiculous to say he's overlooked. Um, but I suppose not maybe not quite so celebrated as he might be. Absolutely. Well, I mean, only 12 riders in history won more races than Jan Kersipu. Mm, uh, mm. But I think he's he's just not remembered at all by most Anglophones. Yeah, well, he never rode over the over the Alps or the Pyrenees, did he? No, I thought that was great. I mean, he could <laughs> barely get over a Cat Three climb, and he still won 130 races. So I've interviewed him. Yeah, terrific. Um, and when a there's a feature that makes me um, think back to the time when I sold off all my. Um, replica cycling jerseys because I just had too many and I wasn't wearing enough of them but I did keep my Brooklyn jersey and um, it's obvious why I did that because it's a fine jersey Um, and uh, Colin O'Brien has a a piece about that with uh, the whole story and particularly Roger de Vlamink and Aldo Gios um, on on the Brooklyn team. Um, We've got a feature on domestiques um, and the, uh, the usual columns from rohan is that a new column from rohan about um bicycle ads that is a new column we're hoping it'll be regular as well for the rest of the year good yeah yeah so um this is about campagnolo record delta breaks uh love them or hate them you've got to have an opinion about them and um uh, matt seaton i really enjoyed matt i mean i always enjoy matt's column but this time i think this may be the, the my pull out quote from the entire magazine this time around is that matt seaton says that his life has been changed by youtube instructional videos <laughs> <laughs> so um read why that is uh, robert miller of course and um, more cartoons from martin proctor 
from the um, Cappuccino CC. All in all, 162 pages of, uh, of, of cycling goodness. Thank you to Andy McGrath, managing editor of Ruler, and to Tim John, making his debut in the podcast, um, also managing the website. Um, t- while you're there, while you're there, Tim, what's on the website that isn't in the magazine? Why should people go to the website? Well, most of what is on the website isn't in the magazine, Jack, and that's uh, something that we hope to we hope to continue. Um, Rowan, for example, if you like what you read in the magazine, you can find entirely separate features from Rowan on the mag- uh, on the website. Uh, there's analysis of of the races. We can be more timely with the website than we can with the magazine. We have a column called Desire, which celebrates uh, the very best design. I've always believed that it's possible to write intelligently about product, and that's something that we're trying to do in our Desire column on the website. So many reasons to check it out. Thanks both, and thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thanks for downloading this edition of the Ruler podcast. You can read Ruler magazine, which comes out eight times a year, by taking out a subscription, go to www.ruler.cc or you can pick up the latest edition at a growing number of bookshops and bike shops. If you've got an iPad, you can read the magazine on the iPad. Not only the current issue, but a handful of back issues as well. You'll find it in the Apple Bookstore. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.